Let's pray. Father, whom have we in heaven but you? And on earth there's nothing that we desire besides you. You are the strength of our heart and our portion forever. You are infinitely valuable because you're infinitely glorious. And we want to embrace you for all that you are. We want to speak of you in words that are true. And we want to be used in this culture to undo destructive strongholds that make it hard for people to know and see and believe and be saved and enjoy you forever. So use this conference to that end, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the theme here is relativism. We will work toward a definition by asking the question, how is the bad thing, most of us are assuming right now, that's a bad thing. How is the bad thing called relativism different from good ways of thinking relatively? All right. I think you will clarify the bad that we're talking about by contrasting it with the good. If I say, for example, to illustrate the good, if I say John MacArthur is tall, that statement is true or false in relation to, that is, relative to the standard of measurement. So John MacArthur is tall would be true in relation to me or men in general. But it would not be true in relation to adult giraffes or the, the Sears Tower. So we say the statement, John MacArthur is tall, is relative. It's true or false relative to a standard of measurement. Now that is a good and indispensable way of thinking. If you're not able to process statements that way, you will probably wind up accusing many people of mistakes they are not making because you haven't tuned in to their standard of measurement, their context. There's so many examples. My father was old when he passed away is a statement. Is it true? Well... Not relative to redwood trees, but relative to men, 88 is old. That car is speeding. Is that a true statement? So important that before you jump on anybody in disagreement, you ask meaning statements. You ask relative statements. Relative to what? A 35 mile an hour speed limit? He's speeding. A NASCAR race? He's not speeding. That baby's cry behind us in the plane is loud. Well, relative to what? Is that a true statement? The, the baby's cry is loud? Relative to the way first class or any other part of the plane ought to be loud. Relative to a thunderclap? Not loud. 
The reason we don't call that way of thinking relativism is because the two people who are saying John MacArthur is not tall and John MacArthur is tall, both of them have a concrete, objective, external standard in their mind, giraffes or men, and if they would make that clear, we could agree with each other. Or disagree and start arguing on the basis of a shared standard. That's not relativism. That's good. That's a good way to think, and I hope we don't make the distinction. So what would make all of this relativism that we consider to be bad? For it to be relativism, you'd have to say one of these four things. One, there is no external objective standard for measuring the truth or of the statement John MacArthur's taught. There isn't any. Or you might say, uh, you can't know what it is. It may be out there, you just can't know it. Or you might say, it's out there, you can know it, but you can't figure out what it means. So it doesn't function as an external objective standard. Or the fourth one is, You might say it's out there. You can know what it means. And I don't give a rip whether it's out there. I'm not going to pay any attention to it and say what I want to say. So any of those four would be the basis of what we call relativism. Now, it starts to sound silly. It really does sound silly if you're only dealing with John MacArthur is tall. But let's shift away from that statement to one that's explosive and immediately relevant, like Sexual relations between two males is wrong. Now, there's a statement. Sexual relations between two males is wrong. Now, two people may disagree about that and not be relativists. You got that? If you're with me so far, you would understand that to be the case. Because they may share the same external objective standard. God's will expressed in an inerrant Bible. One of them reading that Bible and saying, it does not teach that sexual relations between two males is wrong. And another one saying, it most certainly does teach that sexual relations between two males is wrong. That's not relativism. That's disagreement based on a common standard. That's that's the right way to proceed in argumentation. Would that the world were so simple today. Relativism comes into play when there is no objective external standard affirmed for right or wrong that is valid for everyone. And so your statement... Sexual relations between two males is wrong, is only dependent on your standard of measurement. But you can't put that on me. You can't expect me to yield and submit to your preferred standard of measurement as to what is true and false and Good and bad and right and wrong and beautiful and ugly. 
So now we've come to the essence of relativism. Relativism is uh, the view that no one standard of true and false, right and wrong, good and bad, beautiful and ugly, exists that is valid for everybody. Now, what does that imply about truth? Really, MacArthur should be giving this talk. He he just wrote the book, Truth War. I don't think it's quite out yet, but that's what it will deal with, I am sure. Relativists may infer from that lack of standard that's valid for everybody that there's no such thing as truth. It's an unhelpful category. It it confuses things to talk about truth. They may go there. More often, instead of going there, there's no such thing as truth. That doesn't sell. Rather, we speak of your truth and my truth. Truth becomes, if your ideas conform to your standard of measurement, then you're speaking truth. And if my ideas conform to my standard of measurement, I'm speaking truth. And my truth may not be your truth, and then we contradict each other. But we can still talk about truth in that sense. Yours conforming to your standard, mine's conforming to my standard. And then we have relativism, truth being preserved in that sense. So the sum of the matter for the meaning of relativism seems to be that statements and convictions that flow from them... Uh, like sexual relations between two males is wrong, are not based on any standard of measurement that we can share as valid for everybody, but rather they're based on preferences or shared community values. Community preferences or individual preferences is the way you would decide whether to speak of right and wrong in relation to that. Now, there it is. What shall we make of it? How shall we assess it? Is it a bad thing or is it an inevitable thing? Let's begin our assessment by going to Jesus. And I invite you again to open your Bible to Matthew 21. Jesus is dealing in Matthew 21, verses 23 to 27, with some... Classical, pragmatic relativists. Now, they're not self-conscious relativists. This text has the seeds of relativism. They are de facto relativists. They function like relativists. And that's, that's the way most people who are relativists are. They don't think through the philosophical position called relativism. They just absorb it and then function this way. And so watch Jesus interact with De facto relativists. Matthew 21, verses 23 to 27. When he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question, and if you tell me the answer, then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, where did it come from? 
from heaven or from man. And they discussed it among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Why then didn't you believe him? But if we say from man, then we're afraid of the crowd because they hold John to be a prophet. So they said, they answered Jesus, we do not know. And he said to them, I won't talk to you. That's my paraphrase. Neither will I tell you, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Now look carefully at the chief priests and the elders here. Test yourself. Jesus asked them to take a stand on a simple truth. John's baptism. From heaven or from man. Declare to me what you believe to be true. And I will tell you what I believe to be true about myself and my authority. Tell me about truth. And they ponder. Now, get this. They really think. They're thinking here. If we say it's from heaven, you know what's going to result? Shame. We're going to be shamed. Because Jesus will point out our hypocrisy. That we're saying one thing and, and doing another. And we don't want to feel shame. So we cannot say that is true. Or should we say it's true that it was from man? If we say that's true, the mob may harm us. And we don't want to be harmed. So we can't say that is true. So since we can't say either of those is true because we don't want to be shamed and we don't want to be harmed, we must think of a new truth and assert that one. And that truth is, we don't know the answer to your question. What are we going to make of this? It's not full-blown relativism. It's the seed of relativism. This is the way the depraved mind works. Here we are now at last night's message in relation to relativism. Commented that the adulterous mind or the adulterous heart that doesn't want to marry truth, it wants to marry what it delights in and enjoys. And the mind then becomes the lackey, the servant, to defend this choice. This is what's going on here. We don't want to be shamed and we don't want to be harmed. Wants are governing what we will say to be true. That's universal among human beings until they have a renewed mind. The mind is debased. Depraved, darkened, futile. When it was created by God 
to discover and embrace and be shaped by and use truth to worship and enjoy God and serve people. The mind is prostituted in bed with our passions. So the elders and the chief priests do not use their minds to formulate truth. They use their minds to save their skin. We don't want to be shamed and we don't want to be harmed. So we can't speak the truth on this one or the truth on this one. We will use our minds to create a truth that gets us out of this pickle. That's what happens when the depraved mind functions. What's at stake for these guys? Truth? No. They're not even posing the question, what would be a true answer here? They're posing the question, what works? Unbelievably relevant to our day. So what has become of the mind and its handmade language? The answer is the mind has become the nimble Oh, how amazingly nimble the mind has become in its slavery to our passions. It's really effective. The adulterous heart produces a very nimble mind in finding prostitutes. Language does the dirty work now. It has been prostituted from its glorious calling to give expression to truth. It has been prostituted now to use itself as the covering of duplicity. To hide. We don't want to say that is true. And we don't want to say that is true. Language is prostituted. What a tragedy. We don't want to be shamed. We don't want to be harmed. So how shall we use the gift of language? We will create a truth that gets us out of this. We don't know the answer. To which Jesus responds, I wish I could have heard the tone of his voice or the look on his face. Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. I do not carry on serious conversations with the likes of you. Who would he talk to today? Jesus abominates the kind of arrogant, cowardly prostituting of glorious gifts of the human mind and human language. I said it was the, this text is the seed of, The root of relativism. And what I mean is this. The claim that there is no standard for measuring good and bad and true and false, right and wrong, beautiful and ugly, that is valid for everybody. That claim, that relativistic, self-conscious, philosophical claim, I'm arguing, is rooted in these fellows' way of thinking. 
Namely, it's rooted in the cravings of the human heart not to want to be constrained by any external authority or standard. But rather, it wants to enjoy the exaltation of the self. Shame would put the self down. Harm would put the body down. We want to exalt self and comfort. Therefore, we will create a philosophy that enables us to protect what we want. That's the ultimate root of relativism, I'm arguing. Therefore, it's bad. And we should avoid it. And we should bring our children up in a way that they do not believe it. And we should do whatever we can do for college students so that they will move away from it. And as I've reflected on that, how can I be an instrument in God's hands here and today in my life so that I am a means of protecting my children and and the younger generation from going there and help bring people back from being there, the answer that I've come up with is articulate as well as you can its evil and its destructive effects. And that's what I'm going to spend the rest of my time doing. I have seven of them, I think. Seven evil, destructive effects of embracing relativism. Because you can't usually argue people out of relativism because they've pulled the plug on the foundations of argument. But if you can show them, if you can show them, look where it leads, they might awaken to the folly of it all. Number one, these are seven destructive effects of relativism. Number one, relativism commits treason against God. Relativism is a revolt against the objective reality of God. The sheer existence of God creates the possibility of truth. We heard MacArthur say that in quoting one philosopher. God is the ultimate and final standard of all claims to truth. What he is, what he wills, what he says, is that external objective standard that's valid for everybody. And when relativism says there is no objective external standard relative or relevant or valid for everybody, it is speaking like an atheist. It's committing treason. James chapter 2 verses 10 to 11 is an interesting statement concerning the dynamics of treason against God. James 2.10, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. And then it gives the reason why. For he who said don't commit adultery also said do not Murder. In other words, the key to James' argument that connects God's law to God's person, that is the key to why if you break one law, you break all of it. 
It's because there's one lawgiver and one law breaking is a revolt against him. And to revolt against him one way, ten ways, a hundred ways is revolt against him. Relativism is a pervasive revolt against him because it denies the very concept of divine law. In fact, it is a worse revolt than directly looking in God's face and saying, I will not submit to your law. It's worse than that. And the reason it's worse than that is because it's devious. It doesn't say, I will not submit to your law. It says to men, there is no such thing as law. Which is a very subtle way of denying that God exists. So, if we tolerate in our children or in ourselves, if we do not try to overcome relativism, we are complicitous in cosmic treason. Number two, relativism cultivates duplicity. Most people don't like duplicity. So we might make some headway here if we help them with this. Everyone knows in his heart that believing relativism to be true is contradictory. And everyone knows intuitively that nobody tries to live relativism consistently. Therefore, both philosophically and practically, it cultivates duplicity when it spreads. Since everybody knows it won't stand philosophically and it won't stand practically. People say they believe it, and yet they don't think consistently about it, and they don't act consistently with it. Therefore, they are hypocrites. Therefore, relativism breeds hypocrisy and duplicity. It is morally corrupting in that way. It's contradictory because the very processes of thinking that a relativist engages in commits him to principles that are not relative. The law of non-contradiction, the law of cause and effect... He uses whenever he formulates arguments about his relativism. That they are not relative is the only way he can talk about his relativism. And therefore, philosophically, it is shot through with self-contradictions. And when this is done knowingly, which it is by many people... I would argue in one sense, all people, it is immoral. Relativism is immoral. The king keeps saying he has clothes on when he knows he's naked. People keep saying all is relative, all is relative when they know the very thinking that they're performing in the statement is not relative. They are immoral and they're duplicitous. And nobody wants to be duplicitous unless they are the embodiment of demonic evil. 
It's most obvious in practical life, isn't it? People simply do not live as relativists. Nobody does. Professors play the game. This really makes me angry when I think about it. They play the game with our young people. The academic game of relativism in their classes. And when they go home, they get upset when their wives don't understand what they say. Why? Because they assume my words have an objective meaning which you have some moral obligation to understand and respond to. No husband, no philosopher, no teacher ever said, since all truth and language are relative, it doesn't matter how you interpret my invitation to sleep together tonight. You can interpret that any way you want. It might mean in the same house. Or it might mean have sex. doesn't matter. He gets upset if she doesn't get it. Why does he get upset? Because he's a hypocrite. That's why. He's duplicitous. He's teaching one thing in his philosophy class. And he's living another at home with his family. Whether you're writing love letters, rental agreements, instructions for your children, directions to your house, contracts, sermons, obituaries, you believe what you write carries an objective meaning and you hold other people accountable to read and get what you intended to put in that letter. Nobody is a relativist in a courtroom where their objective innocence hangs on objective evidence. Zero. It's just one massive bluff that's gripped our country because the God of this world blinds so many eyes. And may this conference open eyes and spread like a great light across this dark land. Number three. It conceals, relativism conceals doctrinal defection. One of the most tragic effects of relativism is its effect on language. In a culture where truth is, is prized and considered to be an objective reality out there that you can strive for, discover, embrace, live by, be ennobled by where that is believed. Truth is out there. Language has a great and noble task. Express accurately, compellingly, fittingly what that truth is. May language be horrid and ugly in its expression of horrid and ugly reality. And may language be glorious and beautiful and effective in the expression of reality that's beautiful and glorious. Oh, what a high calling you have with your mouth if you believe there is truth. But in a culture... Where truth is scorned, there is no objective external standard out there by which you can give expression to truth. Language 
becomes power broken. Objective truth vanishes in a fog of relativism and the role of language changes. It is no longer the humble servant carrying precious truth. It throws off the yoke of servanthood, takes on a power of its own. It doesn't submit to external reality. It creates its own reality. It no longer serves to display truth. Now it simply defends preferences. This gives rise, as you know, to every manner of spin. The goal of language is no longer the communication of reality. It is the manipulation of reality, the creation of reality. It no longer functions in the glorious capacity of affirming and embracing and confessional truth. Now it functions in the devious capacity of concealing defection from the truth in our churches. Listen to Machen now, 80 years ago. This is so unbelievably relevant. J. Gresham Machen, writing in the book, What is Faith? 1925. It makes very little difference how much or how little the creeds of the church, the modernist preacher, affirms. Really? He might affirm every jot and tittle of the Westminster Confession, for example, and yet be separated by a great gulf from the Reformed faith. It's not that Part is denied and part is affirmed. Rather, all is denied because all is affirmed merely as useful. Could have been written tomorrow, yesterday. Language no longer functions in our creedal confessions to articulate a high, noble, strong affirmation of what's out there. Rather, language is used to express, I find this confession for today useful in holding this band of people together. I asked a colleague one time, who I did not believe was affirming inerrancy, The way I was affirming inerrancy or was affirming inspiration, what I thought we meant by it. I said, you believe in inspiration? He said, well, yeah. You're signing the statement. Yes. What do you mean by it? He said, I mean that Moses wrote the law and God blew the ink dry. That's the level of engagement and authenticity and integrity that this professor had. The utilitarian view of language is a direct fruit of relativism. It leads to evasive, vague speech that enables the relativist to mislead people into thinking, I'm still orthodox, And they're not. Listen to this 
as Machen goes on, this temper of mind is hostile to precise definitions. Indeed, nothing makes a man more unpopular in the controversies of the present day than an insistence upon definitions of terms. Men discourse very eloquently today upon such subjects as God, religion, Christianity, atonement, redemption, faith, but are greatly incensed when they are asked to tell in simple language what they mean by these terms. So in all these ways, relativism corrupts the high calling of language, makes it a criminal in covering the doctrinal defection of those who don't have the moral courage to publicly say, I have left the evangelical faith. The exact opposite use of language is commended to us in the Bible. I love these phrases. They define the way I want to be and want to preach. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 2. We have renounced disgraceful underhanded ways, we refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Would that that were the the mindset of every preacher, every teacher. No cunning. What you see is what you get. I've got no secrets. I'm not pulling the wool over anybody's eyes. Oh, that that would be the way we would all communicate. Number four, relativism cloaks greed with flattery. Relativism cloaks greed with flattery. Apparently, the Apostle Paul was accused in Thessalonica of greed. Listen to how he defends himself as he relates flattery to greed. He says in 1 1 Thessalonians 2.3, Our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, But to please God who tests our hearts, for we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. His ministry hung in the balance here. And he knew that you can sell the word of God and get money. Or fame. If you'll just use language to give people what they want. What is flattery? It's his word. In verse 5. Flattery is the use of language to help people feel good about themselves. So you can get something from them. A job. Money. Sex. Applause. I will, I will butter you up. That's what language is for in the relativistic milieu. It ceased to be submissive 
to reality, and now you can sell it. Relativism is the perfect atmosphere for turning language into a pretext for greed by flattering people. Listen to Paul. This is 2 Timothy 4, 3. The time is coming, he said, when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers all over America to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth. Language becomes a means of greed by becoming flattery. And against that impulse, Paul says, here's another one of these massively important preacher statements. We are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. We will not sell our language. We won't sell God's word. Number five, relativism cloaks pride in the guise of humility. This may be one of the most important. Relativism cloaks pride in the guise of humility. September 9, 1999, Minneapolis Star Tribune printed an editorial with this sentence. Christians must abandon the idea that Jews must be converted. That idea is one of the greatest scandals of history. I read that in my local paper and I wrote a response to it. And in the response, I just quoted scripture. Amazingly, they they printed it. One of the sentences was, uh, since only he who has the son has life, therefore it is not arrogance, it is love to commend the son to the Jewish people and say that they must receive him for life. That's not arrogance, that's love, which brought a blistering letter from the four biggest churches in downtown Minneapolis to me with this sentence. Unfortunately, arrogant is the right word to describe any attempts at proselytizing. In this case, the effort of Christians to win over their Jewish brothers and sisters. Thoughtful Christians will dissociate themselves from any such effort. That's written to me. Now, the point of telling you that little story is simply to draw attention to the fact that if you believe that there's an objective external standard to which Jews and Christians must both submit, you will be called arrogant. And the counterpoint to arrogance is humility, and therefore relativism is presented as the humble position, and it it wears humble clothes because it says, who, who am I to say what the external, objective, universally valid standard is? I, I, I cannot rise to the level of, of making that decision for anyone. That really does play well in America today. It really does look like... Humility. 
It isn't humility. When truth with a capital T goes, so does humility. Goes like works like this. If there's truth out there, the capital T, universally valid for all men, then we must submit to it. Submit. Have you ever thought about the meaning of the word understand? Understand? Stand under it. Not over it as ruler and guide. I will tell the truth what it is. I will make it what it is. That's pride. But if you say, it's there and I'm under. And wherever it goes, I'm going. Whatever it says, I'm obeying. You're a servant of the truth. But what happens to the soul when it decides it's not there? Humility? No. We become master. I mean, what would you say of a humble servant of a master who said, I simply am not able to discern anymore which of these my master is? In fact... I am so humble, I'm not even sure I can conceive of the concept of master anymore. Therefore, I will do as I please. There's something fishy about that definition of humility. That's where we are, folks. All over the country, relativism is being sold with the currency of humility. It's not. Relativism is created to protect arrogance. I will do what I please. I will be my own master. I will not stand under anything. Thank you. You can have your standard. I've got my standard. That is the very essence of original sin. And it's the essence of pride. It poses as humble, it puts on humble clothes and it walks through the streets wearing humble clothes. But mark this, it chooses every turn it makes, every path it walks down, every pace it goes. I'll choose, I'll choose, I'll choose wearing this humble clothes. And here's what's needed. We need for many children or childlike simple people to stand along those streets and say, the king has no clothes on. The king has no humble clothes on. He's telling you there are clothes on. You're afraid to tell him he's stark naked in his pride. We're not afraid. He's got no clothes on. Oh, that there would be more children among us. Number six, relativism enslaves people. John eight thirty one. if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. 
If we cultivate an atmosphere in which there is no truth or truth is regarded as unattainable, we will create a kind of Christianity that will simply colonize slaves. People are not freed from sin in the fog of relativism. They fall off cliffs in the fog of relativism. They stay in their chains. The remedy, Jesus says, is sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. If we lead them away from truth, we leave them in unholiness, in chains of sin, and they will be destroyed. Listen to the word of Paul in 2 Thessalonians 2.10. They perish because they did not receive a love of the truth so as to be saved. Anything that helps people not love external, objective, universally valid, divine truth is murderous and enslaving. Finally, number seven. Relativism leads to brutal totalitarianism. The formula is simple. When relativism holds sway in a society, over time, sooner or later, more and more people do what is right in their own eyes. That's what relativism is. And when enough people do what's right in their own eyes, we call it anarchy. There are only two solutions to anarchy. One is revival, a moral reformation that brings people into some submission to external standards of conduct that enable business and commerce and industry to work because there's enough honesty to make contracts kept and so on, or a dictator. And if we insist that there is no standard out there to which we must bow in order to be an integrated democracy, there will only be one solution, namely a dictator. Let me read you this amazing quote from Michael Novak that he wrote about uh, 12 years ago. Totalitarianism, as Mussolini defined it, is the will to power unchecked by any regard for truth. To surrender the claims of truth upon humans is to surrender the earth to thugs. It is to make a mockery of those who endured agonies of truth at the hands of torturers. Vulgar relativism is an invisible gas, odorless, deadly, that is now polluting every free society on earth. It is a gas that attacks the central nervous system of moral striving. The most perilous threat to the free society today, therefore, is neither political nor economic. It is the poisonous, corrupting culture of relativism. During the next hundred years, the question for those who love liberty is whether we can survive the most insidious and duplicitous attacks from within from those who undermine the virtues of our people, doing in advance the work of the father of lies. He was speaking in Westminster Abbey when he received the Templeton Prize. Remarkable words. There is no... Here's what those people who do the advance work of the father of lies say. There's no such thing as truth. They teach our little ones. Truth is bondage. Believe what seems right to you. 
There are as many truths as there are individuals. Follow your feelings. Do as you please. Get in touch with yourself. Do what feels comfortable. Those who speak this way prepare the jails of the 21st century. They do the work of tyrants. That's wise. Now, the list of damaging effects could go on. I'm done. I haven't spoken of ones I would like to speak about. I haven't spoken of cultural relativism that silences the prophetic indictment of personal and social dysfunction that destroys people in the name of morally neutral ethnic identity. I haven't spoken of the poisonous effects on personal integrity as the commitment to keep one's own word as a sacred bond is eroded, but we must stop. Remember the chief priests and the elders. If we say from heaven... He's going to say, why didn't you believe? And we'll be shamed. But if we say from earth, they believe he's a prophet. They could mob us. And since we love our ego and don't want to be shamed, and since we love our physical comforts and don't want to be harmed, we cannot say that it's true that it was from heaven or it's true that it was from the earth we will have to think of another thing to say as truth that will get us out of this situation. Let's say that it's true that we don't know. Jesus, we don't know. Brothers and sisters, that is colossal bondage. Bondage to the love of self. Bondage to the love of personal comforts. So that you are enslaved to use your mind to destroy the fabric of truth. What's the solution? You know what it is. If you will believe in Jesus Christ as the one who takes away your shame and takes away your guilt, promises to give you all the protection from harm that you need in this life and satisfies you with good forever and ever, you will be the freest of all people. Your mind will be free to see the truth, embrace the truth, love the truth, and spread a passion for the truth, no matter what the cost. And that's what's needed from you in this country of ours so badly. Do that for the glory of Christ, who is the way, and who is the life, and who is the truth. Let's pray. Oh, Christ, we want so much for you to be seen for who you are, known for who you are, obeyed for who you are, loved for who you are because you have been received as infinitely glorious, infinitely precious, infinitely beautiful, 
and therefore infinitely valuable so that we can walk out of here and say, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. In your name we pray.